This week, an exclusive talk with Gustav Skarsgård on passion, rejection, fame, Westworld, and that massive Swedish invasion. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Welcome back. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro, and this is Pop Culture Confidential, a Spotify original podcast. So Swedish actor Gustav Skarsgård is one of the most thoughtful and reflecting actors I have ever had a chance to talk to. He may be part of an acting dynasty, but he has always followed and carved out his own path. After getting into one of the most prestigious drama schools in Scandinavia at the tender age of 18, he went on to win the Swedish version of the Oscar, the Guldbagge. He landed a role in Peter Weir's film, The Way Back, and many major roles in and out of Scandinavia. For the past few seasons, he's played Floki on the TV series Vikings. And even though he is so often far from home, home seems to have come with him. Swedish talent, actors, directors, music producers are all over Hollywood now. His best friend since they were 12, Matthias Varela, has a role on Narcos. Joel Kinnaman is there. And of course, his own family members, Alexander, Bill, Walter, all in starring roles. The Swedish Hollywood invasion continues. Gustav Skarsgård is about to take his career to the next level as he steps into Westworld in a part that he says is his dream role. Gustav Skarsgård, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So I'm speaking to you from L.A., but I'm not quite sure I understand your base. Is this your base now? Where do you actually live? I'm pretty much still based in Stockholm, but... um. I can't even remember the last time I was there for more than like two weeks consecutively. And I've shot Vikings in Ireland for five years and then now Westworld uh, for this last year here in LA, which is a place I've been going back and forth to for several years anyway. So, uh, so I don't know, like the short question is yes, I'm based in Stockholm and I'm just never there. Does that life suit you? Yeah, I think it does. Sometimes I kind of long for having a more permanent base or just the idea of having a home, you know, uh, which I do really do in Stockholm, but I just never really get a chance to appreciate that too much. But uh, I, I don't know. Down the line, I, I think I would also like to have a place here. If everything goes according to plans, that would be nice. I really like it out here. So, But I, I would never let go of Stockholm completely because... That's home, and that's where I have the bulk of my family and friends and such. Do you have something you always have with you or do when you're in Ireland or when you're in L.A. or, like, something that, you know, keeps you grounded? I really do have a, you know, my roots in Stockholm are very strong. I've lived in the same neighborhood um, that, I, that I was born in and, and lived in my whole life, and I have my family and my friends within a few blocks away from me, so I'm very grounded there and i think that also kind of like even just having that as an idea kind of enables me to be more flexible and more fickle and because i do have that strong sense of a of a a base as well or at least a home or an origin you know that you always can return yeah and that it's still there you got into the very sort of prestigious acting conservatory here in Stockholm, and, and you were pretty young, if I recall. I think you were like 17 or 18, right? Were you the youngest in the group that year? Yeah. When I got in, I had just turned 18, which was like the bottom 
level that you could, you know, like you had to be 18 to apply. So yeah, I was by far the youngest in my group. How would you describe what you sort of wanted from acting then? What were your thoughts on your future? Um, I was like growing up with a dad who's an actor, as most people probably know. <laughs> I didn't ha I didn't like my, my dad, when I was a kid, he worked in the theater up until I was like eight. He worked in the theater, you know, 24 seven, constantly rehearsing something, playing something else. And he did a movie now and then. And it was, it was tough. It was hard work. Um, so I didn't have any sort of misconception about this being a sort of glamorous mm -hmm. occupation by any means back then. But I think there must have been something in his passion about it that was appealing to me as a kid. Uh, that what is that thing that he's doing that's obviously even more important than us, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so I think that was kind of infectious as a kid to see that sort of passion that dad had. So and then I got a chance to to try it out as you know a six year old or whenever I had my first little role uh, and I loved it. It was like I I you know get get to play pretends and and get paid for it, <laughs> uh, you know even as a kid and and the idea that that is an occupation is just amazing or was amazing to me. So so I, I decided really early on that that was what I wanted to do, and then I don't know it was just, I just really really liked it. I've always gotten really excited about good roles, good materials, good projects. So, so yeah, that's. I think that was it for me. That I, it was out of sort of lust. Were there any other options for you? Was acting always your calling? Yeah, without like stereotypically identifying myself too much as you know being the the actor, the thespian. Like, um, I'm. I've always been sort of a reluctant actor like when i remember when we went to high school um before i went to the conservatory went to high school that had like a uh, a drama program uh and it was me and and my best friend matthias varela and our other friend peter eggers and we ended up in this class in, in a school called soda latin and we didn't identify with the other kids at all because they were all scarves and reading you know <laughs> me and like being the the, the like the, the aesthetic kids and, and we were like we were little hip-hop punks and and people like our classmates they looked down on us like these guys are not real actors ironically we are the only three people out of that class still working as actors i was just gonna say matthias varela's in narcos and you're over there and <laughs> yeah exactly well peter is also doing that yeah. Uh, so, so, so that was, it's kind of fun. Like I never identified as being the actor in that sense, the identity of the actor, but yeah, like it is what I am and it is what I've always been. And I remember dad once told me when I was like 15, uh, we were talking about, you know, and he was drunk and we were talking about acting and he put his hand on my shoulder and he was like, Gustav, guys like you and me, we don't have a choice. <laughs> and it's like, it's so tricky and doubly like captivating because in one sense I felt like, you know, I felt chosen. I was like, yeah, guys like me and dad, we don't have a choice. We're, we're inherent actors. That's what we have to do. It's our calling. And also by believing in what he said, it's like, yeah, so I don't have a choice, <laughs> you know? And I, I think I did believe that. And I think I... I sort of had that idea all the way through 
you know, the conservatory and everything. I don't think it was until way later when I started questioning, like, when did I ever really choose this? Did I actually really choose this? And, uh, and I think that, you know, I've come to having to choose this over and over again. But now I feel like, okay, sure, I'm, I'm 37 years old and it's all I know. But like now I can kind of like allow myself to think that this is not necessarily everything mm. I could do or wanted to do. Uh, I just don't have a better option yet. But I mean, <laughs> you know? you've also written and directed stuff. So I mean, of course, within your art, you can do a bunch of stuff, but um... for sure. Yeah. So when I really try to stretch my imagination, I'm like, yeah, maybe I should write something. Maybe <laughs> I should write something. <laughs> Were you good at all the parts of what comes with acting? I mean, the rejection, the fame in those early years, which are sort of the toughest years before you broke. I honestly didn't have a whole lot of rejection in my early years. I obviously had the fear of rejection and that initial immense fear of, of rejection that you do when you're young and you're applying to, to drama school or, you know, auditioning for, for parts and whatnot. Of course, like there would be the, some roles that I would audition for that I didn't get and whatnot. But, um, no, I think like my rejection came later. Um, that's interesting because how was that then? That fall may have been even harder than if you're not used to rejection. In a sense, yeah, uh, I think so. It wasn't really until I started traveling over to L.A. and, and going on meetings in this town when I really got, the, got to taste this bitter <laughs> sensation of rejection. But let me circle back to the fame aspect because that was something that I had dealt with my whole life. I was famous before I was an actor in any professional sense because of my dad. And so, and that was something I really struggled with as a kid. I would sometimes lie and say that I had a different last name. And mm. like, uh, so that was something that, that I never really wanted or, or strived for. Uh, so that was always like sort of a, you know, a consequence of the profession that I had a hard time with. Uh, so when I finally started, you know, working more professionally and I did, you know, acquire some level of fame, that was, I didn't like that at all. And that's also why I have been so restrictive with uh, media appearances. And, you know, um, you don't see me on a whole lot of glossy magazine covers. And that's not just because I'm bald. <laughs> well, I hate I hate to tell you this, but your fame is only growing. Yeah, yeah, I know, and that, but that's that's like a byproduct of of, of my mm -hmm. of my work, um, the way I see it. So to get back to the rejection part, um, so when I finally I, I did this movie, like to me, it's all I've always been very adamant about you know, being the son of uh, an acclaimed actor, I've always been adamant about proving to myself mainly that I can stand on my own too artistically, that I don't, you know, take any shortcuts due to my privilege and, and whatnot. So, so that's why I was always adamant about learning the craft, going to drama school, paying my dues in the theater and whatnot, and also to not go over here and take representation over here based on my contacts or through my dad and then go that kind of route to 
to a career over here. Uh, so it was important to me that whatever I achieved had to be on my, based on my own merits. The first international film I did was a movie called The Way Back with Peter Weir. Mm. And that was, a, that was a film that I got as a consequence out of the work that I had done back home in Sweden. And then I was a shooting star in the Berlin, Berlin. Film Festival. And, and then there I met casting directors that then cast me for this movie with Peter Weir. So it wasn't until then that I felt that it was right, the right time for me to, to sort of come over here and do this whole a circus of whatever this means. But after having done that film, then I felt like, okay, maybe it's time now. And then I started coming over here and I got representation over here. And, you know, I came out for pilot season and, and that was tough. That was really tough on the old ego because... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because all of a sudden, I'm, I've always managed to maintain a, a sort of high level of artistic integrity back home in Sweden. Uh, and I you know, pretty much haven't done a whole lot of projects that I didn't want to do or compromise on that thing. But for some reason, when I came over here, I was encouraged to go in for all these really crappy network television shows that I would never, ever want to do, even if I got them. But my representation like encouraged me to go in anyway to get to know the casting directors and whatnot. And so I end up going in for these horrible network television shows, still, you know, working my ass off on the scenes. I would sit up all night and learn these crappy scenes and I would come in <laughs> and, and, and like really try to do something out of nothing. And sometimes they didn't even turn the camera on. It's like the most humiliating level of auditions that you can imagine. Uh, and then not getting the parts that I don't even want. And it's that sort of like the rejection when I'm like, you're, you're, you're not telling me that you don't want me. I don't want you to <laughs> like, end up in that whole thing. Um, so that was sort of a, a, a bumpy road. And retrospectively, I think that there, there was probably a, a huge lesson in humility and letting go of pride and ego in that whole thing. And especially as simultaneously my, my older brother is breaking out real big and, and, and my friend Joel Kinnaman is breaking out real big. And I'm just like, what, you know, what's, what's, what's wrong? Why is this not happening mm, to me in the tough. same fashion? Yeah, that was tough. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 but I also think that it was really, you know, humbling in a sense for me because I, I didn't have to face a whole lot of rejection in my earlier years. And, and I had a massive sense of hubris artistically. And so I think that those blows, you know, led me to a place of more humility and resulted in me becoming a better actor as well, I think. It's funny how something, you know, that old expression, be careful what you, you wish for, because it's funny how something you don't even want becomes a huge blow when you don't get it. Exactly, yeah. And then, of course, there were other things that I really wanted. And I think that I was just a bit naive as to how easy it would be for me to sort of go from my Swedish career and then that I would move to the same point because I was pretty much really established in Sweden and didn't have that much further to go in, in terms of establishment in Sweden. And you had I, already won the Guldberge, which is the, the sort of Oscar of Sweden. You directed movies. I mean, you've done everything you hear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought of 
uh, thought of expected that to sort of translate di directly over over to here, which was not the case. And not your last name either. No, exactly, exactly, which uh, which is sort of nice. Mm -hmm. And of course, like, what did I expect people? To, they don't know me over here. I have to prove myself over here as much as I have proven myself back home in Sweden. In a sense, it's a, it's sort of a, a nice challenge as well to be like, okay, I really have to prove myself again and, and over here or internationally. I, I have a little list here. You were mentioning a few because Stockholm is slowly emptying. We have Alicia Vikander, Rebecca Ferguson, Numi, Matthias Varela, Narcos, you were mentioning, Malin Åkerman. I just saw Tuva Novotny in, in Annihilation. David yeah. Denchik. Who Didn't know. In, that was a surprise. Yeah. David Denchik, who was in your class on top of the lake. Yeah. You guys, uh, Faris Faris, and you are going on to Westwood, not to mention all your brothers and, and, and everything around. And every single director has left. Why are Swedes so good? One side of it, obviously, is, you know, hype or whatever. This city is very fickle and it's a huge industry and people tend to run for whatever's you know, sparkling the most at the moment. And that has obviously been this huge thing with Scandinavian actors now for a while. Not to say that we wouldn't be competent or enough or more competent than whatever or whoever, but so that's one side of it. The other side of it is, I mean, and I, and I think this goes for the success of Swedish musicians as well, is that we have this, at least to some degree still, old social democratic welfare society where, I mean, look at me. The first thing I did was a role that I did for public service television. And then I pretty much worked for public service television my whole upbringing. Uh, I went to a, a mid-school that was super creative, uh, like sort of Montessori kind of school, public school. We had huge, tons of music and and, and plays and and arts and whatnot and we were really encouraged to be creative and then i applied to a to a high school that has a drama program all for free everything is public and then i i get into this conservatory that is also a, it's a grad school and it's free for everyone um who you know who's lucky enough to get in obviously but so 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 i think that that's it that we have this institutionalized our artistic schooling for for a lot of people across the the, the classes in Sweden yeah, and music also. There's tons of after school exactly. music programs you were mentioning. Yes, yeah, exactly, and it goes. It's the same for the music programs as well. And a kid can 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 choose to play the piano. Even if you're, you know, if you're a poor kid from the ghetto, you can do that if you knew that you had the right to do that, which is usually the problem in those areas that they don't even understand the, the possibilities that they have in the Swedish societies because they, you know, it's hard to think outside of your, the box of your own and segregation. Okay. So I have the million dollar question then, which a lot of Americans ask me as well. Why do you leave? Is it the movies are better? The money's better? The fame's better? You know what I mean? Well, since the fame is not what I'm attracted to, it's not that. The money is potentially bigger, but until you're more established or as established as you are back home, you probably would make more money at home or at least as much. So for me personally, the answer is that I just want to have access to more great projects. 
access to more great directors, to more great scripts and, and, and other actors and, and to grow artistically. Uh, and, but I will always go to where the good projects take me. So, so like what you strive for as an actor is to have as much creative freedom as possible to be able to choose to do only the things you want to do and to have to compromise as little as possible on that to provide a living for yourself. And, and by you know, establishing yourself internationally, you just have a greater opportunity to, to reach that. Mm. And one of the things that you and your father always have done is you guys have kept a sort of leg in the Swedish film industry, the American film industry, as well as the European film industry and independent film all over Europe and sort of been able to maneuver yourselves around everywhere. Yeah, which is, a, you know, obviously a very privileged position to be in, but it's also what I want to do. Like, I, I don't want, like, my, I don't, my biggest goal isn't to be, you know, the lead actor of a huge blockbuster action film in, in Hollywood. Like, that wouldn't do it for me. I'm just not interested. I just want good materials. Uh, and then would I compromise a little bit on, say, a character in order for, to be strategic or to be in a, in a project that, you know, might lead to that point where I'm more, you know, able to choose pro projects or to be more bankable for our more indie movies or whatnot. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I, I can't be naive about it, but I don't know, like so far I've been sort of going on my gut feeling for, for what I want to do artistically. And, and, and it's worked out for me so far. Like, and I, and I, I, I don't wait for the huge breakout role or the huge, like, I don't all of a sudden have to have a mansion in, <laughs> you know, Malibu. That's not like, I, I just want to be able to keep doing this. That but what I would love. be your dream role? You were talking about sort of the sucky pilots that they were sending you to and, and you have some, what would you just be like, this is what I came here for? Uh, it's so hard to say because you have to sort of like, you know, make up your dream project that doesn't exist in your head. It's sort of like asking someone what their dream partner would be like. You don't know until you meet them, sort of. I can't go into specifics, but it's it's that feeling when you read a script and you just go, fuck, yeah, like I can't wait to play these scenes, to work with these people, to, you know, experience this journey or whatever it might be, you know, and it's 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 hard to put your finger on, but it's whatever connects with you. So I'm curious about the group of Swedes there in Hollywood. Is there much competition between you? Because um, I see a great reality show. I see all of you guys living together in like Ikea and talking yeah. about your dream roles <laughs> and taking yeah. over LA. Well, like the, the question of competition, like the competition is always within yourself and it always stems out of your insecurities or low self-esteem and whatnot. Um, whenever I feel satisfied, either artistically or about myself, I don't feel any competition whatsoever. I can be, you know, extremely generous with everybody. Oh, I know I, that feeling too, but that's you know, so yeah, seldom. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, it I is. I mean, that's, that's yeah. a nirvana one has once ever so often. Otherwise, one is racked with anguish <laughs> of not being. Yeah, there. well, I don't know, but that's that's also, you know, what I'm trying to strive for in life is to to be in a place where I am self-accepting and have enough self-esteem to 
to feel joy for other people. You know, that I think that's sort of our, that's just the process of living it, mm. is to sort of achieve that. At least it is for me uh, to, to maintain that, that state of being for as much as you can. And, and, and then whatever choices you have to make in, in your life to facilitate that. Yeah. That's, that's what you got to do. Having said that when I'm insecure and, and when I don't feel okay about myself and people around you that you either are have blood ties to or have known your whole life. So like, cause all these people are people that I, in the most surreal sense, have really strong relationships to, which is, uh, it's, it's just really bizarre because we were just kids growing up in, in Southside Stockholm. Uh, so it's, it's just surreal to me, but, um, I, yeah, I struggle to not compare myself with others and, Sometimes I manage and sometimes I fail utterly. Sometimes I manage, but then reminded by the outside world that even if I don't compare myself with others, other people will. There's a reason why all these questions come up every single time I'm, I'm in an interview situation and why people want to know about it because people are just like me. They realize that in that situation, one might feel competition, one might feel threatened, one might feel jealousy. And, and it's, it's natural, it's, it's human. So not sure if you know, but many years ago, I produced a documentary on your father with Stina Dabrowski. Uh, yeah, right. And I was thinking back about it now because he was kind of in the same position that you are now. He was going back and forth to Hollywood with some juicy roles. We were there for the Rennie Harlan shark movie, Deep Blue Sea. But he was saying that the filmmaking part he adored, but the paparazzi fame was something he didn't want and he didn't only want to work out of Sweden and that his goal was to find a third way of managing this life this career is his way of thinking about his career something that's influenced you yeah maybe maybe that's the case maybe he set a good example in that in trying to find that balance uh, which I probably didn't acknowledge enough <laughs> while I was in, in the acting conservatory and thinking that dad was selling himself out for the big dollar. <laughs> but who doesn't when you're 18 very, think of your parents? Exactly. I mean, yeah, and you're, and you're idealistic and you're in drama school and you're like, you know. But, and it's well, your no, parents. But of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Everyone's exactly. parents do yeah, their own. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, but yeah, no, he's definitely set a good example in that. And yeah, for sure. I mean, he, I mean, he's had an amazing, amazing career and still has. Many Swedish actors, including your dad, have talked about the amount of roles with German accents that they have to play. It feels like you, the new Swedish collective over there that we were talking about, you get that less. Yeah, no, no, totally. Uh, it's funny, though, how much the, like, the percentage still of the project being brought to you or that you're called in for, to audition for is like, is that kraut. Oh, is it really? You're still doing the Nazi? Well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a tendency for them to be like, oh, yeah, we need a, you know, we need a Nazi or a, a, a German or a Russian bad guy. Or uh, one funny tendency over here is that they tend to bring you in for characters that are British. Oh, really? You know, yeah, because <laughs> you're foreign, because you're European. And like, like I couldn't pull off a proper British accent at a gunpoint, you know. And and I mean, I, I might maybe if I had you know, 
copious amount of times to to try to nail it but but they just sort of figure you know yeah european whatever <laughs> you know <laughs> so so yeah there's definitely still a lot of that going on um and but but yes yeah, dad was definitely cautious I, I can't even recall if he ever did a like full-on german nazi role he really tried to avoid that and and he's also never been interested in in playing villains in that sort of one-dimensional dichotomous Hollywood sense either. So your dad also talked about that he really does not like to be alone. He surrounds himself with his film or theater family or with you, his own large family. How about you? How are you at being alone? I want to be in a situation, like I need my alone time for sure, but I, I want to be in a situation where the alone time is what I choose and have to make an effort to get, whereas the company is there uh, to be taken for granted. I don't want to li- live in a way where, where I live in solitude and I have to make an effort to get company or to, to have people around me. I want it to be the other way around. But I am, like, it really is important for me that I have the ability to isolate myself or to, to get away um, in some sort of solitude. But but there are many ways you can do that. And in my profession, you get a whole lot of alone time anyway. All the flights or the hotel rooms or, mm-hmm. you know, strange cities you end up in. And, you know, so 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 there's all there will always be that. And I mean, I guess the same would go for that. He would like, yeah, he would bring us a lot. But I, I dare to say that 90 percent of his traveling is done alone. So, yeah. It's important. Alone time is important for me, but that is what I want to have to choose and, and company. So you you have a lot of family around you, but then you can you have the respect to leave when you want to. Sort of, yeah, yeah. That's kind of ideal. I mean, I've always sort of imagined that like the ideal way of living would be probably in a group of around thirty-five to fifty individuals living close together, uh, sort of Bon and Nibule being set up, which is a, a Swedish children's book reference by Astrid Lindgren, when like these families of cousins and and uncles and grandparents all live in like these little cottages in the in the forest and they all live happily together. I mean that is sort of the ideal setup in a sense that you you're surrounded by your by your loved ones and like I, I would like to have I, I you know yeah, like some brothers and some friends. We could all have houses very close to each other. But at least if I had a good, like, I would. I don't want to see a man cave because it sounds so gro- <laughs> no, sounds so gross to me. <laughs> but, but but maybe a study or a studio or or something that I could like. This is my space. Uh, I would like that sort of setup. You know what's so funny to me? It sounds so unSwedish to me. Yeah, no, it's true. Like in, in Sweden, a lot of people tend to live in you know small core families mom dad two children and and even in the apartment houses i grew up in in stockholm like people they don't even talk to their neighbors and i feel like it's become increasingly worse in that regard like people are just just feel so alienated from each other um there's no sense of community anymore and and i think that we have missed out on a lot of things and i think that is I don't want to in any way sell out our social democratic system because I think it's one of the most amazing systems that we have come up with 
in 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 terms of governance as a human as a as a species ever. But but I think there is a backside of outsourcing too much to the state socially in, in a sense that if you if you outsource the the care of elderly to the state and the care of children to the state and 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 everything is outsourced to the state then yeah then you don't have the need for your grandma or they don't have the need for you anymore you don't have you know and then all of a sudden that sort of old clan is sort of dissolved into this core families operating with together with the state um so that is definitely in my perspective a, a downside of that and and something that i feel that I would miss if I were to live like that. But then also like, that's also because I grew up like that. I grew up with my, with my uncle and my cousins, one, one story up from us in, in the same house and everybody lived close and it was a huge apartment, open doors, a lot of people. So I think that in that sense, it, it wasn't a very typical Swedish upbringing. No, it's a, more of a theater life upbringing, something else. Than... Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's also why I've always, I've always felt a bit, alienated from the stereotypically Swedish always you know like like I said my best friend Matias his family is Spanish and I, I feel like I don't know their sort of temperament felt more as as home to me your mom has brought so much awareness to Scandinavia about addiction and courses that she started called my life you've attended them um, you've talked about them you're living that what I would imagine a pretty stressful Hollywood life. Uh, what has the work with your own sobriety taught you about the reasons for your addiction? The main reason that's being taught in, in, in mom's course is the genetic aspect of it. How utterly genetic it is that you might develop an addiction or that you will if you keep using drugs and alcohol. Um, so that was, that's the short answer to that. Mm -hmm. And forgive me if I don't remember if it was your mother or you that said you have to take responsibility for your chemical imbalance, which I thought was something I had never really thought of putting it that way. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, no, because like we're being taught and told all the time that whatever we feel or perceive or ultimately do is caused by our, you know, biochemistry in our brain, be it hormonal or whatever processes those are. And I guess that through knowledge, you can, you can sort of learn to take that responsibility. If you feel stressed out, you're more likely to be a fucking asshole, to put it bluntly mm -hmm. to yourself and to other people and, and, so it's, it, I think it is a, a matter of responsibility to take. I mean, it, it all comes back to just, just be a decent human being. But if, if we have this knowledge about how those mechanisms operate in our brain, then, then, then why not you know, read up a little bit on that and try to take those responsibilities? But how do you do it? For me, sobriety is a great way. Uh, meditation, I meditate daily. That's a, a great way for me to both calm myself down, level my stress levels out and, and also gain, you know, spiritual insight and, and knowledge, self, self-knowledge as well. Mm -hmm. 
but when when you're in the depths of that uh, of feeling like shit and in chemical imbalance that that's a really hard step it is and it's 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 even i mean you can't even conceive of a state that that is not that uh which is something that i mean i guess that's also the point with trying to inspire other people to to realize this that 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 your you know your condition isn't fixed it's not a permanent state of being just because you've gone into addiction or, or reached a, a state of complete chemical imbalance which could also be completely genetic and, and that there are ways to to deal with that and, and to to manage that in life there's some huge news for you out of television you are going to be on the next season of the much-awaited westworld how did that role come to you um well i heard that they were casting for a second season and i was a huge fan of season one like it was to me like amongst the, the, the best television i've ever seen uh so i you know got worried that they were looking for for actors for a second season and i told my management i was like hey guys i heard that they were that they're casting for a new season and then they set me up with a meeting with one of the producers athena uh and it was a great meeting i got along really well with her she's such a cool cool woman um and then i was called in for an audition and they gave me two scenes and they were fucking great awesome scene what you're looking for what we were talking about before was it that exactly yeah Yeah, it it was but it was also extremely challenging because it was a fast talking high status very advanced english uh, super intelligent guy Uh, i had a limited time to prepare before the audition it was one of those scenes where you like like if you miss a syllable everything falls to pieces right because it has to be like super technical and super like confident and uh, and i was in with a casting director uh, john papsidero uh, and i nearly made it every time and then i just stumbled on one syllable and it all fell to pieces and and it happened over and over again and i'm sure we did and i was swearing my heart out in there and i'm i think we did it's probably 12 times or something it just kept falling apart and, and i was just yelling in there uh, and he was great about it and we really tried to get it to get it done right uh so eventually we we managed to get like one full take of this impossible scene and and that i you know i guess i felt like at least i got through it so i walked out of there and i called my management and i was like i fucked up this is not gonna happen like i'm there's no way i'm getting this is not my role it's not gonna happen and they were like oh no are you sure i'm like yeah yeah i I fucking bombed it. Oh. This was last spring, and I had just wrapped a season five of Vikings, and I was out here looking for jobs. And I, I didn't do the pilot season thing. But I was being picky, and I went in for like, you know, I'd say eight, seven or eight good, solid projects. Mm-hmm. This one being by far the most prestigious and the most, the one that I wanted the most. And I had, you know, gone in for all these projects and i went back home to sweden and then just one after the other i just got no no they were looking for something else oh no they went in another direction with the role or no yeah you know whatever reasons they give you or just sometimes no reasons whatsoever and and so i had given up on life and my career and especially westworld because (laughs) and especially westworld because i hadn't you know that was just like you know because i already knew when i walked out of there that i that I fucked up and I, that I wasn't going to get that part. 
Uh, so I was really down and I emailed my manage, manager and he was like, oh, well, I got a good feeling. Something's going to come along. And I'm like, yeah, 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 that's your normal fucking bullshit Hollywood spiel. Don't sell me that bullshit. And, and unbeknownst to me, he already knew that I was really close to getting the role in Westworld, but he couldn't tell me until it was finalized. So then I was actually really, really depressed and, and really low. And, and what annoyed me the most, circling back to what I spoke about earlier about trying resisting the temptation to identify with your position when you're at your lowest, mm-hmm. I was like, I, I failed to do that. And that was what annoyed me the most. Like, here I am. And I'm again, I'm just feeling like a fucking loser. And it was so poetically beautiful that I wake up this morning and I'm literally like, I can't go on like this. I can't give myself or my well-being into the hands of all these circumstances. I, I gotta I gotta shape up, you know. So that morning I went to the gym and I did like a solid hour two of meditation. I went to a 12-step program meeting uh, and I, I even told my girlfriend, I was like, I, I, I'm sorry, I know I've been, you know, a sour wet drowned cat for the last month and i'm sorry i'm 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 gonna pull myself out of this because this doesn't work um and i actually booked like a really nice restaurant for her and me for that night i'm like fuck it i'm gonna you know choose life or whatever and then like two hours before we're about to go to this restaurant then i get the phone call from my manager and they're like you got you got westworld you got the role you're like, and oh. I was like, what, that, that role? That, that role that I fucked up? They were like, yeah, they want you, that you got that role. And I'm so grateful that it happened in that order. I hope you still took your girlfriend to dinner. No, never. Oh, yeah, no. I broke up. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, I can, I can do better now. I'm a Westworld yeah, star. Yeah, no, of course come on down <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, fuck no. Well, of course it, we did. And, and. But it was, I'm just so grateful that it happened in that order. Had the phone call have come the day before, before I chose not to identify myself with this, you know, sense of rejection and depression that I was in, if I hadn't have chosen to pull myself up again out of that hole that I was sinking down into and had gotten the role the day before I did that, then I I would have, you know, put all my well-being on that again so i'm just so happy that i made a choice to be happy and to choose life before i got that and it was just so poetically beautiful as as if you know universe just came down and was like yeah good job here you go rewarded you for some humility (laughs) yeah like instant reward no not for the humility because i mean humility that's the consequence of the blows we're, Mm. we're we're you know we we get but but more the, uh, as a result of, of the choice of like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna identify with this. This is not like, I can't, I can't, you know, I have a lovely woman who loves me. I have the best family in the world I have, you know, to me. And I have, you know, I have so many things to be grateful for. And here I am, you know, pulling myself down, identifying with this loser actor because I couldn't get a job the first fucking month off a show I just left. I've been on for many, you know, it's yeah, pathetic, but, but I'm, yeah, I'm glad it happened that order. 
But now, let's leave all that humility and say you got a great part on Westworld and tell us about it. <laughs> Which I can't. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yeah. But um, can you no, say but, anything about well, the new season? Yeah, no, what I can tell you about the role is that he sort of, for those uh, for those of the listeners who know the show, um, he is sort of the problem solver that the Delos Corporation, which is the corporation that owns the park, uh, that they call in when shit really has hit the fan, uh, which it has, obviously, as we know, uh, by the end of season one. So he's sort of this fixer type, hands-on problem solver guy who they call in and he's sort of the head of this uh, PMC squad, like private military uh, contractors. So he's like ex-military kind of, yeah, cynical guy in a sense, working for the corporation. Is he in the Western theme world or the other, the new one that's coming? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, the shower. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're good. See? Yeah. He's on the corporation side. Okay. okay. Yeah. So you're also starting production on a new film called 438 Days. And for the sake of transparency, I'd like to say that the screenplay for the movie is written by my husband, Pieter Biro. But the movie is a true story of two Swedish journalists who were wrongfully sentenced for terrorism and then imprisoned in Ethiopia. You are going to be playing Martin Shibie, and your friend, Matthias Varela, will be playing Yuan Passion. So why this role? The things that, that would appeal to me in a project would be director. It would be the story. It would be the role. It would be co-actors, castmates, and... The fifth one would be money. Those are like the five things that could, you know, and, and I would never do a project just for one of them. And you want to tick as many as possible. So here I have a really good story, an important story that needs to be told. I get to do it with Jesper Gunsland, who's a director I've wanted to work with ever since his first uh, film Farewell Falkenberg, uh, which was his debut, and he's just extremely poetic in his in his uh, storytelling and ultra naturalistic, uh, and I think a perfect pairing with with the script uh, that your that your husband has written. So 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 you have the story, you have the director. It's a great character, uh, a man who's uh, an idealist who has to, a naive idealist who has to come to terms with himself and ultimately sort of go against his own ideals in order to save himself out of a very, of a predicament, uh, to say, to put it mildly. So you have the character, you have the co-actors. I have my best friend, Matthias Varela, with whom I grew up with and, and, and that I've wanted to work with ever since we were 12. Like he literally is my brother from another mother. We literally are like brothers. Um, so to be able to do this journey with him, I mean, you know, it's about two Swedish journalists who are sentenced for terrorism to prison in Ethiopia. That's the story. So to, so to like live through this amazing and tough story with my best friend is just amazing. 
And the story is a lot about their friendship as well and what the tolls that it takes and, and doesn't and how they help. So you're, it's going to be interesting yeah. to see your dynamic yeah. with their oh, dynamic. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, so, so it, I mean, it, it really is a, a two-hander in that sense. Uh, and, and then just like the external factors that we going to go shoot it in South Africa with that, that whole adventure uh, aspect of it. So, so it really is a dream project in that sense. And it's going to be tough and challenging. Well, I wish you, I can't wait to see that one and, and Westworld, of course. And I thank you so much for taking your time to talking with me. Yeah, thank you. It's been, it's been fun. Thank you very much to Gustav Skarsgård. Westworld Season 2 premieres on HBO April 22nd. And thank you for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at Pod Pop Culture. And make sure to follow us on Spotify so you don't miss a single new episode of the season. See you next week. I'm Christina Erling Biro. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.